Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how did the judge decide the sentences in the Anna Creasel murder case? We have spoken about Anna and the dreadful things that happened to her and her family on this podcast before. Murder, obviously, is always a dreadful subject matter, um, but the sexual assault and premeditated killing of a 14-year-old girl in an Irish town by two boys from her own area is just unthinkable and pretty much almost unspeakable as well. The two boys, now known only as Boy A and Boy B, were convicted of her murder. Boy A was also convicted of her sexual assault. They were 13 years old when they killed Anna. Since the jury returned that guilty verdict in June, there have been a number of sentencing hearings and Mr Justice Paul McDermott had the unenviable task of figuring out the right path to deal with these two teenagers. Thankfully, these stories are incredibly rare and unprecedented in Ireland. So how did Mr Justice McDermott go about this job? To help us understand the process a little bit more, I'm joined in studio by the Journal.ie reporter Gareth McNamee, who was in court for every day of the trial, and Mark Murphy, barrister at law. Gareth, I know we've talked about the trial and we've talked about the case before, but can you just give us a brief overview of what happened to Anna? On the 14th of May last year, Anna went missing. Three days later, she was found dead, naked, in a derelict house called Glenwood House, which is maybe around a half an hour walk from her home. What had happened was Boy B, um, as he's known now, um, had knocked on her door and asked her to come out, um, as Boy A had wanted to see her. Now, during the trial, we had heard that Boy A had previously rejected romantic advances from Anna. So, as Brendan Gwen, prosecuting counsel, uh, put it during the trial, it was like all of Anna's dreams had come true at once that Boy A wanted to see her. So what happened was Boy B had brought Anna through St. Catherine's Park uh, on the Luca Leak Slip border to Glenwood House where Boy A was waiting for her. Now she had thought that Boy A wanted to talk about relationship issues, maybe, you know, go on a date or, or something of to, to that effect. Being a teen, young teenage young, girl. Exactly, just normal teenage things. Instead, you know, he, he was in Glenwood House and as the prosecution uh, put it, which was accepted by the jury, he was there with his hood over his head wearing um, what appeared to be kind of a zombie mask, knee pads, shin pads, all dark clothes, kind of big, strong kind of work boots as well because he knew what he was about to do to her. She had obviously had no idea. In June of this year, the jury unanimously unanimously found Boy A and Boy B both guilty of murder and Boy A was also found guilty of aggravated sexual assault. Now that's something he still denies he did. He, he admits to causing her death but he still denies aggravated sexual assault despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And that's something we heard in the sentencing hearing rather than the mm. trial itself. Was there anything else that came up in those hearings um, that was extra to what we had heard during the trial? Yeah, so we heard kind of reports from uh, psychological staff at Oberstown Detention Campus. We heard that Boyer, as I, as I said, um, he admits to causing her death. There's also not a consensus between both boys about what happened still. There's still kind of arguments back and forth uh, between their reports. So there's elements like it hasn't been decided or hasn't been agreed upon who actually asked 
boy B to go and, and, and call for Anna, um, who smashed her phone when it started ringing when the attack was happening. So we kind of got a more of an insight into the, the horrific situation or horrific uh, way in which she died at, at, the, at that sentencing hearing. And obviously, as I mentioned, Justice McDermott had to decide on a sentence. What did he sentence the boys to? Boy A got life, uh, but with a review after 12 years. Uh, and boy B got 15 years detention with a review after eight. I think Justice Paul McDermott kind of stressed, and I think a lot of people on social media, when the uh, verdict, or the, sorry, the sentencing um was public kind of thought oh they'd be out after 12 or 8 years and Judge McDermott stressed that this was not the case this will be a review When you say life just in Ireland can we clarify what life a life sentence in Ireland means? Yeah during the sentencing this is actually quite interesting uh, Justice, Justice McDermott was setting out like the average time spent in prison for, for adults when they are com- convicted of murder back in the 60s and 70s um, the average he said was 7.5 to 8 years for murder that's gone up now to present day the average time spent in incarceration for an adult who has con- been convicted of murder is around 18 years um, but it's also important to say but when you're released from prison you're always kind of released on licence which means if you commit another crime you can be that can be revoked and you'll be back in prison The sentencing of a minor is obviously very different to the sentencing of an adult, we know that there's mandatory life sentence if you commit murder. As an adult in this country, it's obviously different for children. So what um, the judge had to decide what years to give. So what did he take into consideration when he was doing that? Well, the first one was age. The fact that these two boys were both 13 years of age when they committed these crimes uh, was a significant factor, uh, just McDermott said. Um the imprisonment of these two boys, he's also said there has to be a rehabilitative element to their incarceration. So that's why they're going to be in Oberstown. They're going to be, you know, kind of going to school. He kind of said that, you know, they denied Anna Creasel the chance uh, of life. And now they will have a chance at life that they actually kind of refused her. We're familiar with words like mitigating factors and aggravating factors. What in this case, did the judge find that there were any mitigating factors that he could reduce the sentence once again, age is one of them, uh, but there were actually very few mitigating factors for, it's kind of different for each for each of the boys. So for, for boy A, his partial admission now to Saf at Oberstown that he did cause her death, it was a slight mitigating factor, but uh, Justice McDermott said, you know, I, he feels that boy A still doesn't fully understand what he's actually done and what he's actually caused to 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 Anna to the Creasel family, but we're talking more kind of aggravating factors rather than mitigating for for these two boys. For A, it was the incredibly callous and cruel nature and the way he actually killed Anna and sexually assaulted her. We've heard the details before. I won't go into them too much again. But uh, how her clothes are ripped from her body, um, the the amount of blood in the in the the room where she was murdered and sexually assaulted. Uh, obviously aggravating factors. The fact that Boye still does not um, admit uh, to sexually assaulting her was another aggravating factor for him. Now for Boy B, it's completely different because he was convicted of, mur- of murder, but he was never um, even hinted at that he laid a hand on Anna in anything, in any of the... Uh, the assault or, or the sexual assault or the murder. So he was convicted on the faces that he lured her to Glenwood House um, knowing that Boye was in the house ready to uh, ready to basically kill her or sexually assault her. Um, so he still denies any involvement. He says he didn't know 
what was going to happen and the family his family is, is also supporting that uh, that claim so the judge judge mcdermott said these but this is a huge aggravating factor for for him when sentencing the fact that he hasn't shown remorse because he doesn't accept his guilt um the fact that he could have um, stopped or raised the alarm at Clemwood House on the 14th of May last year but didn't uh, the way he um, essentially lied to to Gardy uh, during various questioning when he was arrested on, on, on both occasions and when he was arrested so these are all aggravating factors for him which resulted in him getting 15 years with a review after 8 The two boys are 15 now um, and we will continue to know them as boy A and boy B mm. will they ever be named? No, is the is the, is the short answer to it? Unless the law changes, or unless an application is made to Judge McDermott when both the boys are over eighteen, um, as he said when after sentencing and before the court rose, you know the the order protecting the anonymity of these boys is still in place and anybody be it on social media be it in, in broadcast media whatever that who names them or gives any details which may lead to their identification will will face contempt of court proceedings and we've already seen um, newspapers brought up for that um, during the reporting of this trial. Mark that's one of the questions that I had as an editor this week like will will they ever lose that protection because there's some questions that I just didn't know the answers to because this is such a rare case in Ireland um how unprecedented is it it's not the first underage murder case in in the country but how rare is it well it's not the first murder case involving a child or or being perpetrated by a child or two children in this case. But thankfully, we haven't actually had very many uh, in the history of the state. Um, And in fact, that in and of itself um, posed, uh, I suppose, difficulties for Mr Justice McDermott when he was sentencing boy A and boy B because there was relatively few precedents upon which he could draw in terms of considering what sentence was appropriate. Um, I think the there was a case uh, back in 2004 uh, which I think Mr Justice McDermott drew on quite heavily uh, and in that case a 16-year-old or a then 16-year-old boy uh, was sentenced to life imprisonment for murdering um, another, another boy um, and In that case, uh, Mr Justice White, as he then was, um, sentenced the 16-year-old boy to to life for murder uh, with a review after 10 years. Um, And and that review then uh, was conducted 10 years later. It's important, I suppose, uh, for your listeners, I suppose, to understand that if an adult is convicted of murder, it's, as you said earlier, it's a mandatory life sentence. But um, the courts have held that it is not an automatic mandatory life sentence for a child convicted of murder. And that actually makes it more difficult to sentence a child than to sentence an adult. Is that set out in law or where do we know that? It's, it's um, It's set out in precedent. So previously decided cases and in fact the case that I referred to there from 2004 um, the fact that it was not an automatic uh, mandatory life sentence uh, handed down by Mr Justice White that was actually appealed by the Director of Public Prosecutions not so much uh, I think, you know, t- t- to put the boot into the boy in question, but more just to bring clarity to the t- to the issue, because it was unclear. And obviously courts like certainty, the law like certainty and people accused and con- of and convicted of criminal offences need certainty. Um, but the appeal courts held that a, a life sentence is not mandatory. And that's so it's, it's from precedent that that uh, fact comes, not from statute law. 
Yeah, Gareth has mentioned there that there has to be a rehabilitation element yes. to um, a sentence, particularly for a child. Will judges try and keep children out of jail for as long as possible in usual circumstances? Absolutely, they will. Um, I think, um, without veering entirely off topic, I think the state uh, has a very bad history in terms of imprisoning children historically for relatively minor things. We've seen scandals that have ensued from industrial schools and the like. Um, I suppose... What's really important to understand is that there was an act, a piece of legislation called the Children's Act, which was brought in in 2001, which largely governs how children are dealt with in a number of areas, but particularly in terms of dealing with the criminal law. What that sets out, and it's also there's also precedent for this as well, is that imprisoning a child or detaining a child must be an absolute last resort. The courts must, when sentencing a child, they must... Uh, consider every possible alternative uh, to rehabilitation or, or in terms of rehabilitation or in terms of punishment prior to detention. Detention must be an absolute last resort. Is there a difference between detention and jail? It just it's a, it's often a, a um, word that has struck me. Y- yes, yes and no. Um, I suppose in, to, to a layman, there may appear not to be because you, you're if you're detained or you're sentenced, you're sent away to a, a place you generally don't want to be. In the case of a child, it would be the Oberstown Detention Centre. In terms of an adult, uh, it could be, for example, Mountjoy, Wheatfield uh, Prison, etc. Um, detention, I suppose, would have much more focus on rehabilitation than uh, a sentence that an adult might receive. So, for example, Gareth has already um, alluded to the fact that if you're detained in the Oberstown Centre, a huge emphasis is put on, for example, education, for example, schooling, for example, using the time that you are in Oberstown productively so that when you are released, um, there aren't, I suppose, lost years of your childhood that whilst, unfortunately, you have been detained, but hopefully you've done something productive during that period of time. Gareth, there was an expectation um, because of the crimes that there would be long detention periods handed down um, after the guilty verdicts. So in court this week, what did what was the room like? What what were the reactions after uh, Justice McDermott actually said um, it's a life sentence with a review or it's a 15 year sentence with a review? I think it was quite it kind of muted a bit like um, compared to the, the verdicts themselves. because That was a lot more kind of... Um a lot more tension, a lot more um, emotion in the air because we didn't know which way it was going to go, especially for Boy B. Whereas for the sentencing hearing, there's kind of an, an inevitability about the sentencing, knowing it was going to be long. It's just how long it was going to be. So when, when A got life, he kind of just put his head on his mother's shoulder. Um, there was no real emotion from him. There was emotion from both his parents who were kind of sitting either side of him. The father and mother both kind of shed a tear. And it's similar for Boy B. Boy B um, started crying, not not hugely, but it was a, kind of a sliffling along with his um, his parents who were also kind of sitting either side of him who were both very emotional as well in the aftermath, as, as you might expect. And the Creasel family were there as well? They were. They were there for the every single day of the trial, every single day of the, the sentencing, every minute of it. And uh, they they sat there and, as they said in their statement after outside court, you know, uh, there's no sentence that's ever going to bring Anna back. So um, they held themselves with a massive amount of uh, dignity. What is next now for the two boys? Did they go immediately to Oberstown? Yeah, like they were probably a couple of hours after the sentencing was handed down. I think there was a lot of kind of admin stuff for an hour, an hour or two. Um, 
I must say say their goodbyes again to their parents who can, can visit them once once a week, I believe, or twice a week. Um they're now in Oberstown up in Santry, um, where they will be basically be, be, be schooled. It's, it's not like a normal prison, to put it that way. There's no kind of locks in the doors, you're you're there's video games, there's um there's classes, there's computer classes. It's it's a lot different to let's say you're doing five years in Mount Joy, where obviously there are education classes in in Mount Joy and Wheatfield, but there's a much bigger focus on rehabilitation and education in Oberstown. And once they turn 18, which is in three years, mm. they will move to an adult prison? This is actually something that arises uh, quite often. The court uh, has a power to sentence somebody to prison per se, but they don't actually direct which prison you're sent to. That is deemed to be an executive function and it's a function solely within the remit of the Irish Prison Service. Um, So ordinarily, if you're sentenced from Dublin, you're taken to Mountjoy Prison. You may then subsequently be transferred around the country, depending on where there's space, where you're from, various other uh, criteria. Um, But it's an executive function as to which particular prison you're kept in. So fast forward then another bit again. So eight years and then 12 years for for Boyer. What will the review entail? How will that uh, happen? So the matter will essentially be listed before the Central Criminal Court again um, for review. It's it's not another sentencing hearing. Sentencing has been passed down, but it is, as it says on the tin, a review of the sentence, basically to see how boy A and how boy B or how any uh, people who are subject to a review are getting on. Um, the There will be submissions, uh, certainly from uh, the legal representatives of the people in question, possibly by uh, from counsel for the Director of Public Prosecutions. And things like um, there may be updated psychiatric reports, psychological reports, there may be education reports. It may be the case um, that somebody who has been uh, detained uh, in Oberstown has completed their junior cert, their leaving certificate, or has, um, can be said to have matured or reflected upon whatever it is that they've been sentenced for. Um, so I suppose they'll be looked at in, as, as you said, eight years and 12 years time uh, basically to see how they're getting on to see uh, how the rest of their sentence should be structured and what judge will decide um that, that's a good question it's listed before the court which is the central criminal court there's more than one physical uh, court uh, and there's more than one uh, judge who sits in the central criminal court um I, I don't know for certain because you're asking me to look into the future but my get my best guess is that it will be listed back before mr justice mcdermott uh, if he is still sitting but if he is not sitting for whatever reason it'll be listed before another high court judge who's sitting in the in the central criminal court Garth, there was an extra hearing on Friday where we got some clarity around what will happen the boys as we get closer to that eight and 12 years. What did the judge say? Yeah, so Justice Paul McDermott clarified the exact review dates and uh, earliest release dates for both boy A and boy B. Uh, for boy A, uh, his review is going to be on in January 2029 uh, and the earliest release date will be in June 2031. Uh, for boy B, um, the review of a sentence will be 19th of January 2026 and his earliest release date will be June 2027. Now, the boys will be moved to an adult prison when they're 18 years and six months old. And after that, there's going to be um, reports sent to the court uh, every two years, so 2022, 24, 26, and, and so on. And why? what's the purpose of those reports, did the judge say? It's to show 
if they're making any uh, progress with their rehabilitation so the judge, whoever's sitting during that review, can get a proper idea of uh, any extension of a sentence or potential release of these two boys. So they'll get a whole look rather than just looking at the person in front of them in 2026 and 2029. They'll be able to see what's happened for the previous eight years. Exactly. They can see the progress if the, if the progress has been steady and continual or if they've reached a bit of an impasse. So the, the judge will get a, a, a proper idea because he or she will have all the reports in front of them. So we don't know exactly when they will be released. But Gareth, what can they expect from life or from outside life when they do leave prison? I suppose a lot of that will come down to whether or not their names. Like, a lot of people on social media and different corners of Ireland are saying, you know, name and shame, name and shame. But they have to think that, as we've been saying, kind of a theme of, of what we've been talking about is the rehabilitation, that, that kind of aspect of uh, their incarceration. You know, it depends, I suppose, brings it back to Judge McDermott's words, you know, um, they have a chance at this if they take it and they do their education, they do, if they, I don't know, learn, learn a craft or, or, or something like that, you know, they have their, their whole lives ahead of them, something which they deny that. We don't have examples of this really, but there there's obviously the Jamie Bulger case in, in the yeah, UK, Mark. Um, th- that has actually caused, in recent years, caused a lot of difficulty just in relation to naming the individuals because the two boys that were convicted of the murder of Jamie Bulger, I think it was in 1993, but I may be corrected on that um, they were not named they were given upon release they were given new identities new names um, notwithstanding that uh, certain portions of the media um, uh, and various vigilante groups have actually made it there made huge efforts to identify these boys um, and that has caused huge problems uh, in the UK um, both in terms of the safety of the boys in question but also as a general principle um, in terms of contempt of court contempt of court orders so um, whilst I think it's unlikely um, that certainly anybody in the mainstream media in Ireland will defy uh, Judge McDermott's order in relation to anonymity there is some precedent from the UK as to what can happen and what can go wrong if people start um, ignoring or looking behind the order that the court has made. As Garrett said, there have already been a couple of contempt cases in this case brought before the judge and I don't think many newspapers or broadcast media want that to happen again. Um, Thanks for explaining all this. I know it's an incredibly tough case to talk about, um, Mark and Garrett. And before we go, I'd like to finish with some words about Anna because during the trial, her family said their suffering was compounded um, by the hearings. They said that they now have to live with the agony of knowing the most explicit detail of what Anna was subjected to and that she had her private life along with the distorted misrepresentation of her by a twisted mind with tainted eyes displayed for the world. So they want us to keep her in our hearts and remember her as they do. She was wild and wonderful, electric, so full of fun, madness and laughter. We could not believe the happiness and joy we had found in our lives. She was the love of our lives and every single night before she went to bed, she told us that she loved us too. Every night she came to kiss us and she said, always in French, good night, sleep tight, have beautiful dreams, I love you. She cannot do that anymore and we cannot tell you how badly it hurts. She was just a little girl with so many hopes and dreams and so much love inside her that she shared generously with all who knew her. Her dream was to build a hotel called the Anna Love Hotel. She drew detailed floor plans and we, her parents, would have a special cottage on the land where we could spend holidays and be near her. Her plans, our future, shattered. 
Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Mark and Gareth for their work on this episode. Just a reminder before we go about another podcast from the journal.ie. Stardust, a six-part special, looks back on St. Valentine's Night in Dublin 1981 when 48 young people lost their lives in a nightclub fire. Hearing from the bereaved, the first responders and those who have been fighting for justice, reporter Sean Murray and the team ask, how did Ireland handle such a tragedy and was much of what happened in the four decades since dictated by class? Episodes one through five, which are heartbreaking but essential listen, are available wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you found an episode that you really enjoyed and you think a friend would appreciate it, please share it. It's the best way to get The Explainer to the people who need to listen to it. Thank you and catch you next time.